Good morning, everyone. I'm Deborah Small, and I'm really happy to be here this morning. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Um, I don't want to speak too long, and because um, I really want us to have time for question and answers. So I'm going to make a few points um, in relationship to the things that have been discussed in no particular order. First, I really want to thank Bobby for what he just said about the whole conversation about research and what we know and what we don't know. I mean, the reality is, if you read the LaGuardia Report, which is 70 years ago, I mean, I find it interesting that we're having a conversation about the need to determine what kind of policy we should have around a substance that we had a report 70 years ago that basically told us was not particularly harmful, was not related to violent crime, did not cause um, you know, social disruption. All of the crap that people have been said was disproved 70 years ago, and yet here we are having a conversation about do we need to know more in order to develop good policy. I'm like, really? That just seems so strange. So that was the first thing. The second is that this whole conversation around the need to protect children. Not like, I don't think that's important, but I think we have to have that conversation in the context of who we are as America in 2014. So I'm sitting here and I'm listening to people say, well, you know, we have to worry about the potential dangers of marijuana and what harm it might cause to kids. And I'm like, really? We can't pass a law to have reasonable gun restrictions to prevent kids from getting gunned down in their schools, and yet we're worried about the harm of marijuana. So I like made up a little list of like risks to youth that they face every day. Overprescription of other drugs, Ritalin, ADHD drugs that they're using a hell of a lot more than they're using marijuana at a much younger age, by the way. Parental poverty. We live in a country in which almost one in three children lives in poverty because of the situation of their parents. I guarantee you that's a much greater risk to their health and development than their access to marijuana. Environmental hazards, including what's in their food and the area that they live in. Quick digression. I'm a grandparent. My grandchild lives in Utica, New York, which is about five hours from here. One of the things that bugs the hell out of me is that there is not one single organic store within 25 miles of that city. So that means my grandson is eating food full of chemicals every day just because of where he's geographically sited. I cannot find him any organic lactose-free milk anywhere up there. And you know, in California, that's freely available to anybody regardless of their income level. Just say it environmental hazards that our children are dealing with a lot more dangerous to them than potential access to cannabis. And then the final one on this little list, educational insufficiency. And here I have to digress again, because I'm a native New Yorker. And exactly 50 years ago, I was in public school in Brooklyn, in an area of Brownsville that was so crowded that we went to school half sessions from 9 to 12 or 12 to 3. Our schools were outrageously segregated. 50 years later, they're the same in New York. Wow. And we're worried about kids' access to marijuana. Seriously, people? OK. That's my point on that. OK. The other thing I wanted to talk about related, so two other things that relate to things other people said, which had to do with the um, 
whole way in which the drug war has been framed then and now around the need either to protect children or to protect white women. And it's just amazing to me that the same people who put forward these arguments don't care about children or white women or women in general, okay? <laughs> these are the same people who are against access to reproductive rights, uh, raising the minimum wage, allowing women to have equal status under the law. I'm like, really? I would rather that you stop protecting me because you're not protecting me from the right things. So let's just like actually like look at the context in which those conversations are raised. And then, you know, the Jamaica conversation. I just, another quick conversation about that, which is that we're, there are some studies of what we've learned about the Jamaican experience. And one of the things that the reports tell us is that those parents who smoked weed were actually better parents. They were more patient with their children. They had less stress. They were more willing to engage with them and play games with them. So I want us to actually, no, seriously. And so let's like not operate from this frame of like all the potential negative things related to cannabis and actually think about the fact that if it's been around and people have been using it for thousand years, there must be some positive things about it. Otherwise, they would have put it aside like some other things like maybe, you know, asparagus and spinach. <laughs> anyway, that's my own prejudice. Um, and that relates to two last things that I wanted to say, which is one that we don't talk about is the punitiveness that still lives within the black community that facilitates all these bad laws and policies. You know, one of the things that was quite shocking to me when I was doing the research about Rockefeller reform and the marijuana reform in the 70s was that one of the main groups of people who opposed decriminalization, et cetera, were the black clergy with the black community leaders, the people I like to call the black Victorians, who believe that somehow, you know, the black advancement is based on maintaining this illusion of respectability that's based on white standards of behavior that white people don't follow. And so I really, really, really feel it's important to put that element there because it's still there. It's still driving the conversation around criminal justice. And one of the things I'll just say on that Last point is that, you know, around the whole thing around Trayvon Martin, I said to people, would we have seen the same response in the black community if instead of holding a can of, of soda and Skittles, he was holding a bag of weed in a joint? He would have been just as dead, but I don't believe that there would have been the same community response to his death as there was because of what he was holding. And we have to get to a point that we care about the, what happens to our kids regardless of what they're doing and what they're holding and what their history is, and get past this idea of having to go after innocent victims. And then the last thing that I want to say is that going back to this whole use, I'm glad about what you said about the way in which we've characterize marijuana as a particular symbol. But I want to like dig into that a little bit more because to me, it was, it's really important what happened in the 60s and the 70s in the white culture around marijuana. And that relates to the conversation that we're having because we, again, talk a lot about the harms of marijuana, but we don't talk about the benefits. Right. We don't talk about the fact that it gives people access to thinking outside of the box, that some of the most creative people in our society have been cannabis users. 
that the reason part of that people in the hippie culture used cannabis was because it actually had them thinking about things that they could be other than corporate cogs in society. And that one of the reasons that we had such a clampdown and demonization of cannabis mm -hmm. was because of the fact that it was generating thinking that was questioning the status quo, the economic status quo, not just the political status quo, and that everything that we've done around prohibition of all drugs has been around maintaining a status quo of control and profit. Mm -hmm. Control and profit. The racism is in support of profit, but it all is about who's making money and making exactly. sure that those people continue to make money and that the rest of us never question who's making it and why. And so I want to leave with one last thing, which is that I believe that personally we need to let go of our conversation about preserving the middle class. I think that that's a 20th con century conversation for a 21st century world. In our world right now, there are only two classes in America. They're the class of people who work for money and the class of people whose money works for them. If you work for money, it doesn't matter what your income is. As soon as it's gone, you are screwed because there is nothing really for you and we are continually eroding the safety net. And if your money works for you, everything in this society is designed to make sure that you can keep it and keep it growing and doing it at our expense. And when we recognize that, then we'll stop all of this policies and law enforcement and stuff that's about looking downward as opposed to looking up.